in there, I would like to, to, to pray for us, if you'd bow with me as you find your way. Lord, have mercy on us now. Exalt your son, Jesus, so that we can see him and worship him and, and love and welcome that which he has brought for us in his birth and his life, his death, his resurrection. We, we welcome it. And now give us ears to hear and hearts to obey you now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. 1 John 3, uh, verse, verse 5, says, You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins. And in him, him there, is, there is no sin. So clearly here, John is writing to us about Jesus. Jesus appeared to take away sins. When he says that he appeared, he tells us that he did exist before he came to earth. And we believe that Jesus is the very Son of God, part of the eternal trinity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The tradition in church that I grew up in, we used to sing what's known as the lesser doxology, the glory patri. Now, how many of you have ever sung the glory patri? Know what I'm talking about. Y'all need to, really need to get out more. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful little course. It goes like this. I'm, I'll read you the lyrics. I won't sing you the song. Um, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And it's a declaration of the eternality of the Trinity. Okay? They've always existed in loving community together, and they've always been worthy of glory. Always have been, always will be. But there came a time, a long-awaited time in the plan of God, when the eternal Son would come to earth as a man, even a baby born in a manger. We call this the Incarnation where the Son of God humbled Himself and became a man. Paul writes about it in Philippians 2. He says, Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? The appearing of the Son of God on earth as a man, and John writes about why He came, why He appeared, the gift he intended to give us. In verse 5, he appeared, Jesus appeared, to take away sins. Um, see, wrapped up under the tree that first Christmas is the gift of gifts. Okay? The best gift ever. The Son of God appeared in order to take away sins. Your sins. My sins. He became our sin bearer. Now, if you were to be reading in your devotions these days uh, that ancient book of Leviticus, I'm sure many of you are there meditating on its meanings, you would find this truth presented over and over and over. Here's, a, here's an excerpt from Leviticus chapter 5. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he, even though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, 
He shall bear his iniquity. He shall bear his sin. Okay. Again, Leviticus 24. And this is all throughout the book of Leviticus. Speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. There is, Leviticus makes clear, there is a penalty that must be borne for every single infraction of God's holy law. Penalty for every sin. And and the sinner bears the penalty, right? It's clear. You sin, you bear an unbearable, life-crushing penalty for it. It is a terrible, even an unbearable thing to have to bear your own sin. If there's anything in the world you do not want to have to do, this is it. You do not want to bear your own sin. All the guilt, all the consequences, all the punishment, all of it on you, you do not want that. You do not want that for your worst enemy. And the book of Leviticus says that that is the lot of sinners. This is our lot. Okay. But mercifully, In the midst of all the symbols and sacrifices and offerings that the book of Leviticus describes, there is a hope there, tucked away in the book of Leviticus. Even a promise, I would say, that God would provide a better way than for us to have to bear our own sin. Here's here's an insight into it from Leviticus chapter 5. It says, When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sins he's committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he's committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So now in Leviticus, there is a priest and there is an offering. There is a way to make atonement, to make payment on behalf of the guilty, to bring about reconciliation with God. And that's done by an offering and by a priest. Now, there was one particular day in the ancient people of God's calendar that that really had special significance in these matters about bearing the burden of sin. And it was called, appropriately enough, the Day of Atonement. Um, and it's, it's described this way by one writer. He says, The issue at stake is whether or not God will continue to abide within the camp of His people, whether He will be with them in the midst of His people. The uncleanness of the people contaminated the dwelling place of God, and the Day of Atonement was provided to remove these sins. So there was a day when the whole nation would gather and they would offer a number of sacrifices for the sins of the nation on that day. It was a great day of repentance and sacrifice with the hope of being reconciled to God. 
And one of those sacrifices is of particular interest to us today. And it's in Leviticus chapter 16, starting in verse 7. And it says that um, the priest shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, and one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. So one of the goats is to be sacrificed as a sin offering for the people. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So one of the goats is offered as a sin offering. One of them, the priest lays his hands on it and he sends it away into the wilderness. Um, That second goat is sometimes called the scapegoat. It's where we get that expression, the scapegoat. And R.C. Sproul writes about it. He He says, the priest also took the scapegoat and placed his hands on it, symbolizing the transfer of the sins of the nations to the back of that goat. And immediately the scapegoat was driven outside the camp into the wilderness, that barren place of remote desolation, to the outer darkness, away from any proximity to the presence of God. The scapegoat received the curse that was due the people. It was placed upon this sacrificial animal. And he was cut off from the land of the living, cut off from the presence of God. And the people watched as that goat bearing the sins of the people, would leave the camp and go out into the wilderness, bearing their sins away. Now, can you see how this points to Jesus? Can you see how it points to him? John the Baptist, upon meeting Jesus, would say this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes Away the sin of the world. And again, R.C. Sproul connects those Old Testament and New Testament dots for us as he says, it's significant that Jesus was killed at the hands of the Gentiles outside the camp. His death took place outside the city of Jerusalem. He was taken to Golgotha. All of these things, when woven together, indicate the reenactment of the drama of the scapegoat who received the curse. The moment that Jesus was on the cross, the sin of the world was imputed to him as it was symbolically to the scapegoat. He says the obscenity of the murderer, the obscenity of the prostitute, the obscenity of the kidnapper, the obscenity of the slanderer, the obscenity of all those sins as they violate people in the world were at one moment focused on one man and Once Jesus Christ embraced that, he became the incarnation of sin, the absolute paragon of obscenity. He says there's a sense in which Christ on the cross was the most filthy and grotesque person in the history of the world. In and of himself, he was a lamb without blemish, sinless, perfect, and majestic. But by imputation, all of the ugliness of human violence was concentrated on his person, Once sin was concentrated on Jesus, he writes, God cursed him. 
And when the curse of the law was poured out on Jesus, he experienced pain that had never been suffered in the annals of history. He writes, I've heard graphic sermons about the excruciating pain of the nails in the hands, of hanging on a cross, of the torturous dimensions of crucifixion. I am sure they all are accurate and that it was a dreadful way to be executed. But thousands of people in the world, in world history, have undergone the excruciating pain of crucifixion. Only one man has ever felt the pain of the fullness of the unmitigated curse of God on him. And when he felt it, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, John writes why in our verse. He says, He appeared to take away sins. See, Jesus became, at the cost of his own life, at the cost of bearing the curse, the wrath of God, as we saw last week. Jesus, in the greatest act of love, laid down his life for us. He became our sin-bearer. He became our scapegoat. He bore our sins. Now, how... Could a gift like that be left unwrapped, so to speak? It's left unwanted and unwrapped when we try to find our own way back to God, another way back to God. We try to make it on our own efforts so we get better educated. We read the Bible more. We go to church We become more generous. We become more dedicated. We try to reform ourselves. We try in vain to self-atone. To bear our own sins. But our sin is an unbearable, life-crushing burden. I've always liked the way Max Lucado describes it. He, he describes it as a sack. He says, you have one. A sack, a burlap sack, probably aren't aware of it, may not have been told about it, could be you don't remember it, but it was given to you, a sack, an itchy, scratchy burlap sack, and you needed the sack so you could carry the stones, rocks, boulders, pebbles, all sizes, all shapes, all unwanted, you didn't request them, you didn't seek them, but you were given them, don't remember? He says, some were rocks of rejection. You were given one the time you didn't pass the tryout. It wasn't for lack of effort. Heaven only knows how much you practiced. You thought you were good enough for the team, but the coach didn't. The instructor didn't. You thought you were good enough, but they said you weren't. They and how many others? He says, you don't have to live long before you get a collection of stones. Make a poor grade. Make a bad choice. Make a mess. Get called a few names. Get mocked. Get abused. And the stones, he says, don't stop with adolescence. He says, I sent a letter this week to an unemployed man who's been rejected in more than 50 interviews. And so the sack gets heavy, heavy with stones, stones of rejection, stones we don't really even deserve. But looking into the burlap sack, he says, you'll see that not all the stones are from rejection. There's a second type of stone. This is what we're talking about today, the stone of regret. Regret for the time you lost your temper. Regret for the day you lost control. Regret for the moment you lost your pride. Regret for the years you lost your priorities. Regret for the hour you lost your innocence. One stone after another. One guilty stone after another. And with time, he says, the sack gets heavy. 
we get tired. How can you have dreams for the future when all your energy is required to shoulder the past? No wonder some people look miserable. He says the, the sack slows the step. The sack chafes. Helps explain the irritation on so many faces. The sag in so many steps. The drag in so many shoulders. And most of all, the desperation in so many acts. You're consumed with doing whatever it takes to get some rest. So you take the sack to the office. You resolve to work so hard you'll forget about the sack. You arrive early and you stay late. People are impressed, but when it's time to go home, there's the sack waiting to be carried out. You carry the stones into happy hour. With a name like that, it must bring relief. So you get the sack on the, set the sack on the floor. You sit on the stool and you drink a few. And the music gets loud and your head gets light. But when it's time to go and you look down, there's the sack. You drag it into therapy. You sit on the couch with a sack at your feet and spill all your stones on the floor and name them one by one and the therapist listens and she empathizes and some helpful counsel is given. But when the time is up, you're obliged to gather the rocks, take them with you. So you get desperate and you try a weekend rendezvous, a little excitement, a risky embrace, a night of stolen passion. And for a moment, the load is lighter, but then the weekend passes and Sunday's sun sets and waiting you it was on Monday morning's doorstep is, you got it, your sack your sack of regrets and rejections. The result? A person slugging his way through life, weighed down by the past. He says, I don't know if you noticed, but it's hard to be thoughtful when you're carrying a burlap sack. It's hard to be forgiving when you feel guilty. You see, you simply cannot self-atone for your sins. You cannot. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot become good enough. It will rob you of joy and hope and peace, and in the end, it will crush you. See, for, to atone for sin takes an offering and a priest. It takes a sin bearer. It takes Jesus. Every offering, every sacrifice on every page of the book of Leviticus points to him. Every one of those sacrifices, every one of those offerings says, God will provide a sin bearer for you. You don't have to bear your own sin anymore. And what John is telling us here is that Jesus is that sin bearer. He's the only one. Paul, Paul wrote about it. He said, in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, the one who knew no sin, just as John said, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus appeared, that's why he was born. That's why he went to the cross. See, to have someone else bear your sins in love, this is indescribably wonderful. Listen to how the Bible tries to capture the absolute wonder and joy of having another in love bear your sin away for you. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west... How far is that? It's forever far. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. 
Isaiah says, I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. It becomes like a cloud or a mist that's just, just gone. Zechariah says, the angel says to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. It's like taking off filthy garments and being given pure vestments. I'm a fan of vestments, okay? It's the most amazing thing in the world. Jesus took my filthy rags, gave me a pure, pure clothes to wear, not of my own making. See, and if you never have, you can open this gift today. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to leave this room and go become a better person. You can cast your sins on Jesus, and they will be borne away from you today. You can trust Jesus to be your much-needed priest and offering your sin-bearer. And before we go any farther, I'd like to stop and pray for whoever here has never done that and longs for that. You're tired of carrying your sack. Know that Jesus died to bear that for you. Let's all pray. Let's pray. Father, have mercy and grace and grant faith to believe the wonderful truth of this message. That our sack is full of sins. And there is another who has borne them for us. Lord, now hear the cries of those in this room who are casting those sins upon Jesus. Believing in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus to be their sin bearer. Father, honor their cries as you've promised you would. And welcome them back to you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. No other. Amen. Now, before you leave today, you need to have a starter conversation with somebody in this room that you trust. And if you, don't, if you walked in here and not, don't know anybody, then I'll be available down front as will several, several of our leaders. And we would love to just have a starter conversation with you and encourage you and even, even pray for you. So if you are making that transaction today... Uh, you are unwrapping the best Christmas gift ever, and we want to encourage you in that. Okay? There's more to this gift. Skip down to verse 8. Look at the back end of verse 8 with me. He says again, the reason the Son of God appeared, okay, same idea, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's, that's what Christmas is all about, to destroy the works of the devil. What works might that be? And so I'd say, let's, let's back up and read the front part of this verse. And I'm going to read it from one of the most delightful and worst named translations around, the HCSB. Um, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. But it's a wonderful translation, just horribly named. Um, the one who commits sins is of the devil.
For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. What are the devil's works? That Christ came to destroy? Your sin. My sin. See, he is saying here that when we welcome sin, we are aligning ourselves with Satan. Our sin aligns us with the devil. The one who commits sin is of the devil, he says. John is concerned to warn the church by this writing against false teachers who had penetrated it at that point in time and had gone out, in fact, from them, who taught that sin was of little or no consequence. No big deal. It says, if, you, if we had read verse 7, it says, Don't let anyone deceive you. There are false teachers in their midst. And John is teaching against these false teachers who say sin does not matter. Sin is not a big deal. Everybody does it. And John is warning them here in the strongest language possible to have a zero tolerance for sin. It's never okay to sin. Every sin aligns us not with the work of Christ, but with the work of the devil. Every time we sin, it's a violation of the truth that's in that old Christmas hymn. It says, love came down at Christmas. Love all lovely, love divine. Love was born at Christmas. Star and angels gave the sign, worship we the Godhead. Love incarnate, love divine. See, when we grasp and welcome and receive by faith the depth of the love of God for us, that Jesus appeared to bear our sins and then died to destroy the very acts we are contemplating, Sin becomes increasingly unthinkable for us that we would do that to the one that we love so and who has loved us so. Sin is a violation of Christmas, the love that came down at Christmas. When we choose sin, we are, according to John, choosing Satan over the Christ child, over our Savior. We are neglecting the very gift that Jesus came to give us, the reason he appeared, which is to destroy the works of the devil, to loose us from the sins that ensnare us. Jesus came at Christmas to set you free, fully free. How does he do that? How does Jesus destroy these works that ensnare us? Well, definitively, he does it in his cross work and in his resurrection. But in our lives, it does not always happen so definitively at a point in time. It does not always happen all at once. In fact, it mostly doesn't happen all at once. There's a big word that describes the process called sanctification. It's the, the slow process of lifelong process of repenting and forsaking our sin. Most of our sins need to be starved, not shot. Okay. They die slow. 
So Jesus has quite an arsenal that he loves to use to help us, to free us from these works of the devil. And be clear again, that's what our sins are. When you sin, you are aligning yourself with the devil, not with the work of Christ on your behalf. Jesus has quite an arsenal of things he loves to use to help us be free. Let me mention just three of them this morning. One, he loosens us from these sins when they are brought out into the light, when they are confessed and not kept secret anymore. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Secret sins. Our snares set deep. Jesus wants us to bring them out into the light, to confess and then forsake them. Telling someone you trust, inviting their prayers for you is part of the arsenal Jesus gives us to be free from our sin. And that really leads to a second weapon that's closely related in Jesus' arsenal. Um, And that is a brother or sister in Christ that you trust enough to be honest with them. Galatians, Paul talks about this in chapter 6. He says, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Very important, in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You need to share with someone the sins that ensnare you, the ones that trip you up again, again, and again, the secret ones, so that they can pray for you and help restore you. It's part of Jesus' way for you to get free. A third weapon in Jesus' arsenal is that we would become prayerful and wise about what the Scriptures teach us about the sins that plague us. 1 Thessalonians 2 says something interesting. It says, we thank God, Paul writes, he says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. And then he says something interesting. He says, which is at work in you believers. He implies that the very words of God have a power to work and to change us. And the Bible has much to say, much to say, about things like anger and pride and lust and fear and greed and doubt and unbelief and selfishness and all the things that we struggle with. It has much to say about them. It has much to say about what the remedies are that are there. You should be an expert in what the Bible says about your snares that are set for your soul. And coupled with prayer in the hands of God, this is a powerful thing. It is at work in believers when we meditate on it and reflect on it and let it shape our lives. Jesus comes at Christmas bringing the very best of gifts for us. He has become our sin bearer. And He has Come to destroy the works of the devil in your life. This morning, 
Will you welcome and unwrap those gifts? The very best of gifts. Let me encourage you, as the worship team comes to lead us in this closing song, um, that you might come for prayer, come to consecrate the decisions you're making this morning to be free from the sins that plague you. Come with a brother or a sister or come to pray with one of our leaders. Um, If God's prompting you this morning by his word and his spirit, I encourage you uh, during this time to use that as a time to pray before the Lord. So let's pray together now if you'll bow with me. Come, desire of nations. Come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head, Adam's likeness now a face, and stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king. If you'll stand, let's sing that prayer together now as God's people as we close.